the Reader podcast. My name is Francis and I work for the Reader. I'm joined today by one of my colleagues, George Hawkins. You're going to hear more from George later in the episode when he interviews one of the Reader's patrons, Rob Trimble, who was until very recently chief executive of the Bromley by Bow Centre in London. But before we hear all about Rob and Bromley by Bow, George, would you introduce yourself? and explain your role at the Reader. Yeah, sure. Hi, Francis. So I am uh, Head of Facilities and Capital Development at the Reader. I've had a bit of a funny career, really. Uh, started off as a comms intern back in 2011, uh, but basically since then uh, working towards making the Calderstones project happen in one form or another. Uh, a, a good chunk of that time was spent on the development side of the work, so uh, the, the fundraising efforts, uh, building those connections that kind of allowed us to develop what we've developed here. So for those people who've not seen the Mansion House of Calderstones, um, we we arrived in uh, in 2012-13, it would have been originally, uh, to this big old grand grade two listed mansion house that was pretty dilapidated really and had been being used by the local authority for various sort of back of house office type functions for years and years. And I grew up around here, um, sort of not, not far from the mansion. I always remember it being very closed off uh, and unwelcoming to people. Um, but when we arrived, sort of really small team at that point, we had a we had, we had quite a long challenge ahead of us really to raise well millions of pounds, frankly, to uh, to to turn the building into some to something special. So for quite a few years, we 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 kind of just had this little rump team uh, sat in the in the in the mansion with water dripping on our heads after time. Um, while we while we work towards uh, being able to start start the capital project, this big th- th- this big piece of work that was going to sort of uh, you know always felt like this massive moment, um, and then eventually we got there, we, we we got the money raised, and we we started down that road towards uh, towards really really in practical terms making it happen. Um, and I suppose at that point there was quite a lot of change for us. Really, we had, we had to develop a whole new way of working, whole new teams. Um, to, to manage that internally um, and during that we were thinking really hard about the next change which would be when we opened which ultimately was in was in 2019 after quite a lot of delays and all the rest of it um, so in, in in 2019 we we, we opened the site uh, to the public obviously only about seven or eight months before covid came along and kind of changed the world on us but it's it's been a really interesting few years uh you know we're, we're speaking now at the start of july 2023 um so we've had we've had nearly four years of of, of the mansion in one form or another um part of that you know we were closed during lockdown but we got reopened really quick actually um and yeah it's been a really interesting learning experience fantastic um, I mean, we'll talk a bit about, you know, why we have the Mansion House, what the dream was that you were sort of doing all that funding towards in a second. But I think because I work remotely in London, um, whenever I visit, come up and visit Calderstones, it's easy to see how close that site team are and how well they work together. But it's a big team now, isn't it? Could you talk a bit about how many people you're working with to keep the site running every day and how you kind of... Um, have fostered that closeness, I guess. Yeah, sure. So it's um, 
it's it's a lovely team actually. It's a, and it's re- and it's really nice that it sort of feels that way for people, um, people like yourself who, who don't ordin- we don't ordinarily get the pleasure of your company, do we? Um, but so there's a couple of aspects to it really. We have the, we have the, the the operations and facilities team who kind of work hand in glove with each other. We we often deputise for each other's roles. Uh, kind of the way I conceptualise it is that you know facilities looks after the the spaces and the places and you know the, the physicality. Uh, and the operations team makes sure everything works for the people who, who come to those spaces. Uh, and then sort of alongside that, we've got the events team, the, the front of house team and the programs team. So events are the people who run all of the kind of uh, public facing stuff here at the mansion in terms of commercial activity. So we have weddings here. Laura's team put on an absolutely world-class wedding. It's fantastic. Uh, I would encourage anyone who's listening, who uh, if there's anywhere in the UK who's planning on getting married anytime soon to get in touch with Laura. But yeah, so we've got a lovely setting here and people love coming here for family events, for uh, yeah, for weddings, christenings, that kind of thing. Then alongside that, we've got the programmes team who are a brilliant little group of people who we are working increasingly close with actually, which has been brilliant over the last, last I'd say like six months to the last year. The programmes team are effectively the people who deliver our, our social programmes on site. So our volunteering offer, our shared reading offer, our what we refer to as the the well-being groups, which are sort of those those additional to shared reading groups that we run, things like Nata, our gardening group, the upcycling group. They, they run all those different those different offers. The heritage offer sits within uh, within that team, uh, and then finally we've got the the front of house team, who are uh, the basically the people who run the cafe, the ice cream parlor. And, and, and all those bits of food and sort of hospitality service on site. But really, we all, the way we are now, we all kind of operate as one team. Obviously, you've got to have, you know, the right lines of management and, and structure and responsibility and all that kind of thing. But I think one of the things that we've really succeeded in in the last few years has been in inculcating that sense that we're all, we're, we're, we really are all one team and it, and it works. And whenever we... Whenever we find ourselves straying away from that is usually when we find we're getting problems with things. So it's a signal for us to reorient ourselves and remind ourselves this is why this works. The other thing I haven't mentioned, of course, is the Story Barn, which is our amazing sort of children's-focused interactive literature centre here on site, which opened back in 2015. Um, and, it, you know, is one of the absolute leaders in the country in that kind of work. Oh, brilliant. That's so that's so many people and so many moving parts at any one point. What was the idea for a literature organization to have this big venue in a park? What was what were you sort of um envisaging back in the days when it was still a, a an old mansion with a leaky roof? What was the vision? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the the vision always came back to this uh, anecdote that Jane used to tell about uh, a guy she knew in um, in a reading group. I can't remember where the group was, but I remember the guy. Uh, the guy was a recovering was was in recovery from drug addiction, and Jane got chatting to him at the end of a group, um, and then after he left, after a good conversation, she was speaking to one of the workers in the in the setting. Um, about what you know, what that guy's life is going to be coming out of uh, coming out of rehab, uh, and the feedback she got was, we see this all the time. He's going to come and he's going to work really hard and he's going to try and not slip back into the old habits. 
But what's going to happen is he's going to go back to his flat with the same people around him that he's always had. And he'll get a knock on the door from someone who, you know, might might be a friend who will, will offer him some drugs. And he'll probably say no the first time. And he might say no the first 10 times. But because he hasn't really got anything else going on, eventually he'll say yes because he's because he's lonely because life's hard. And Jay, this this really stuck with Jane. And she she tells that anecdote much better than I can. Um, but it always stuck with me from years ago listening to her talk about it. Uh, and fundamentally, the idea behind Call the Stones is to create a place for people where people can get a little bit more. People can come and find connection and find engagement in a variety of different ways that meets them where they are. Really, it's just a place people can come and be. And we, over a few years as an organisation, realised that we needed this in order to really be able to get the best out of what we do, out of the shared reader model. So one of the other sort of lines of thinking on that is that we we quite often seen in the past that when we would run a shared reading group in a, in a sort of partner setting, we would do, us, our staff members, our volunteer uh, reader leaders would do amazing work in the group and making people feel safe, feel welcomed, feel supported um, and, and help people get over the undoubted barriers that people have when they first start engaging with shared reading. But sometimes we'd find that people would have a bad a bad interaction on the way in They'd have a receptionist who didn't know what shared re- what the group was that they were there to attend, or there'd be some some kerfuffle going on. And sometimes they wouldn't even make it through to us actually, because the setting didn't reflect the, didn't reflect the values that make the group work. So, really, uh, and again, this is kind of this is kind of the way I think about it. Um, I, I don't think we've we've ever sort of expressed it in the. In, in these terms but for me it was about creating a space that reflects the values that make shared reading work you know that val- value of openness value of kindness but boldness which is actually one of our one of our reader written values isn't it but that thing about doing the right thing even when it's even when it's a bit difficult the stuff that really makes shared reading the powerful thing that it is and the idea was we're going to create a space and we're going to create a whole series of things that can engage people around that and basically we're going to build it and we're going to we're going to try and get people to us um and ideally we're still working towards this but build a, an exemplar that other other communities elsewhere in the country and possibly around the world can follow to create sort of sustainable well-being you know and obviously ours is built around shared reading but other people have done similar stuff which is where we get to the link with rob uh, and bromley by Bo. Before we go on to hear from Rob, um, could you just explain sort of when you first met him and why you went to visit Bromley by Bow down in London when you were when you were during the planning stages of thinking about Colder Stones and, and what kind of place that was going to be? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was back in 2015 when I first met Rob. Jane had had, had met him um, and came back very excited and energised about this this place, probably by Bow. And at the time, we'd been talking a lot about internally about things like the Peckham Project around sort of social determinants of health and the value of connection and 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 and, and all that kind of stuff. And basically, Jane came back very 
very keen on this 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 model that these people in London had created, uh, and so I you know sort of much earlier in my career was sort of well up for the idea of going down to London to uh, to do a bit of fact finding. So myself and one of our my even younger colleague Amy, um, who was one of our apprentices at the time, I think we went down for a few days and stayed in a stayed in a hotel and immersed ourselves into life at Bromley by Bob. And, uh, and to be honest, it was absolutely brilliant. It was absolutely eye-opening um, and a huge inspiration. And I, I, it was immediately apparent why uh, why that place was an inspiration, a sort of theoretical inspiration for Calder Stones. Um, and I think afterwards, as we got into the, uh, really into the nitty gritty of the design phase, it became a practical inspiration as well as a theoretical one. Well, let's hear more about Bromley by Bow and how that place works now from Rob. Thanks so much, George. Hi, Rob. Really good to see you. Hi, George. Nice to see you too. How's it going up there in Scotland? Yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, the sun's shining. It's uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's very different from East London, I have to say, after thirty years in East London. But uh, yeah, no, it's nice. It's a, it's coming home for me, of course, because uh, this is where my roots are. Of course, and, um, well, it's a it's a real pleasure to speak to you. I think we we last spoke back in twenty sixteen, didn't we, Rob? When I visited the centre. That's right. That's right. You you had, you had a few days with us, I think. Um, most visitors who come to Bromley by Bow kind of uh, are in and out quite quickly, but you, you hung around for a bit. So I think you probably soaked up some of the atmosphere and got a sense of what was going on, really. Yeah, me, me dad has an expression, uh, soaking up the atmos, that um, he uses to refer to getting to the football early before it uh, before it <laughs> off. Um, and yeah, it felt a little bit like that. We were there for a good, I think it was three days, actually. It was a, it was a brilliant trip. But uh, before we start reminiscing too much about that, um, Let's talk a little bit about about our places. Um, do, do you want to tell us a little bit about about Bromley by Bow Centre, Rob? Yes, of course. Um, so, I mean, Bromley by Bow Centre has been a huge um, and significant uh, part of my life. Um, not just because I worked there and was chief executive for twenty years, but actually I was involved in one shape or form for over thirty years. So I started off as a volunteer and a member of the local church there, and I basically stayed. So very big and significant uh, part of my life. Um, and as I say, for the last 20 years, I was I was chief executive of the organization. Huge privilege to do that. Um, it's almost difficult to describe what the Bromley Babo Center is, because in some ways it kind of defies traditional logic around what an organization should be. But I guess organizationally, um, it brings together uh, primary care, general practice uh, in the community and combines it with a whole range of other support services for the local uh, population. In the case of Bromley by Bow, uh, you're looking at one of the most deprived parts of East London, so real socioeconomic challenges for the community people living there. Um, and the project was really founded in this idea that, you know, something like 80% of our health is driven by social factors. So having a decent job and a decent home to live in, having a decent start in life, these things are fundamentally far more important than uh, what medication you can access or what the, what the primary care services are like. So we built a model which included primary care because that is important, good clinical 
uh, support for people is is vital. But I suppose we were looking to try and provide a range of services that supported those other social needs that people have, uh, supporting people to get education, to be uh, well in that sense, and economically active, um, able to bring up their families and support their their, their families in ways which uh, enable a much more positive kind of outcome and future uh, for them and for their communities. And suppose in doing that, we kind of recognised that it isn't just about the services we were able to deliver, but the kind of place that we were able to make, that whole idea of placemaking and creating a community. So it's not just dependent on an organisation or the local authority or the health service to kind of provide lots and lots of good services, but try to knit things together uh, in a way that um, help people support themselves. And, and I suppose that's what, we, that's what we did. And in order to do that, we delivered a whole range of those services I'm talking about, but also created a, a place, a three-acre site with beautiful gardens, a place that inspires and creates that sense of self-worth and self-confidence for people. And also using the creative arts idea that we're all artists, that we can tap into that creativity that sits within us, was at the heart and soul of, of what the model was. So I suppose if if you were to kind of land from Mars and say, well, what is it? Well, it clearly obviously is the general practice. These days, actually, with over 50,000 patients operating across four sites, it's a charity delivering a whole panoply of services from social welfare support for people living in the community all the way through to supporting people to set up their own businesses. And over, over 90 businesses created in that, in that time locally in East London. But more importantly, a kind of layer on top of that, which is about create spaces in which human beings can connect and build more positive relationships with each other. Sounds a bit woolly, but actually fundamentally, the whole Bromley by Bow model is about how do we enable people to connect in a way that they feel safe and secure and uh, use creativity to do that. The reason we're talking is that, you know, Bromley by Bow and, and, and Call the Stones sort of are, are really quite similar in some some fairly key bits of the DNA, a little, uh, really, but... I, I don't think that sounds woolly at all. I think that that stuff of human stuff of connection and community and purpose, um, it's it, it really is really is what it's all about. Um, that's a lovely description of um, of, of, of of Bromley actually. The uh, Calder Stones has got some similarities, I think, and, and some quite big differences as well. We're, we're set in the middle of a uh, in the middle of a very large park in South Liverpool, which we don't we don't manage uh, but we're sort of intrinsically a part of um, and we've got we've got a really interesting site here that's an old mansion house um, that we, well, we refer to it as the mansion house um, where we we run a whole a whole range of of kind of well-being health um, shared reading uh, and, and social enterprise activities really along very similar lines to to, to, to what Bromley tries to do uh, I think the big difference for us is we don't have any of that. Um, we don't have any primary care uh, on site, and I think that's a really big difference actually. And because that that constituency of fifty thousand patients, that is such a huge number. We're not. We haven't got that. We've uh, we've got our community here, and we work hard to bring people to us. But I think what where the where the real similarity is is that that core belief in the the primacy of of purpose for people of connection. And of opportunities for you know you focused on creativity just to do things that are positive um both internally and, and positive sort of externally to people give back to other people in the community it's um yeah it's a wonderful model um we feel very lucky here to be working in the middle of a park 
and I know you guys created a really beautiful space in in a really kind of really quite deprived area of area of East London. Um, that was something I, I always I always particularly admired actually that that sort of holding of the beauty and that sort of almost insistence that the people of that community deserve that beauty uh, was something that I remember being struck by back in 2016 when I, when, when I visited. Yeah, no, it's interesting you say that because I, I suppose there's two things that stand out from what you just said for me. What, one is that sense of a journey that um, and I think it's true in, in, in the reader's context and in the Calderstones Park context, as it is for us in East London, which is about the, our place in history. These, you know, we're not something that's just landed. Um, you know, there is a context um, to, to our work, and there is a, a kind of thread of human activity that's happened around us. And we we just happen to be, for the last forty years or so, you know, being the custodians of that story in, in that community. Um, and I was struck when I first heard about Calderstones. It's its rich history, the history of the mansion house, and all of that kind of stuff. There, there is for me something about being the custodians of, of the story of the narrative. Um, of these places at uh, this particular time, and of course, the journey is is into the unknown. It's we don't know what future holds, um, but it is that sense of of kind of being there to to kind of pass it on, hopefully in better shape than than we received it in in, in some ways. Um, the second thing was um, was about the kind of the park and the space. I remember I always used to kind of be slightly bragging when I talked about the fact that Bromley by Bow had a three acre site, and then. Uh, Jane told me the reader had taken <laughs> it was a massive park, albeit not taken it over, but nonetheless set in a, an even even bigger space. And uh, I think uh, when I when I first met Jane, uh, literally when I first met Jane, um, she came down to visit Bromley by Bow. And usually when uh, people come to visit, I I meet people um, outside uh, because we're we're one of those organisations that doesn't really believe in signage. And so we've always thought it's much better not to put up signs because they discourage people to talk to each other. And uh, we always wanted people to kind of uh, bump into people and ask the way because it was a it was a, another one of these human encounters. And it, it has its upsides and its downsides. But um, usually when visitors come, you know, you try and be around to, to meet them. And I remember the day that Jane, vividly remember the day that Jane came because um, obviously, as always, you have it in your calendar. You know she's coming at a particular time. And I, I went out and I'd heard about the reader. Uh, at the time and was kind of really fascinated uh, by it and um, I thought she I thought she'd forgotten to come actually um, because I, I couldn't find her anywhere and then suddenly I noticed in the courtyard garden uh, there was this woman kind of bent over these plants <laughs> sniff, sniffing the sniffing the flowers quite literally uh, and sure enough that was Jane and uh, I, I was always struck that her first encounter with the Bromley Bible Centre wasn't a PowerPoint presentation about health or a PowerPoint presentation about kind of uh, uh, social challenges. It was this encounter with nature, this this idea that you're walking into a place which very deliberately, and we do have a health centre, we do deliver clinical services, but very deliberately is designed uh, to reduce people's heart rate, to put them at their ease. Um, I mean, clearly people arrive in, in very trying circumstances sometimes and just having a garden isn't going to solve all the problems. But but that idea that when we go and see the doctor, often uh, our pulse increases, our heart rate increases, we feel more nervous than we did before we started. And it seemed to us that, that is, that's kind of the wrong way around. Surely a health service ought to be putting people at their ease and making people feel better and well from the very beginning. Um, but that, that whole encounter with the nature 
um, is is fundamentally really important. And I, I do think that kind of mirrors the experience that you guys have had up in Liverpool, um, perhaps not by accident in terms of the space that you've got in Aldersleys. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, it's a lovely anecdote about Jane as well. Um, she, she's often to be found doing that here now. Um, <laughs> I, I felt this over the years when I was at Bromley by Bow that there were some people you met and it was just instinctive. Um, there was no need to explain. There was this kind of, yeah, I get what you're doing, and this is really interesting and really exciting. And I, I think with Jane, it was very much two way street when she started describing the reader at that time, a reader organisation it was called then. You know, it was very much um, different kind of manifestation of the principles and the behaviours and the purpose, but but pretty much the same thing. Trying to do the same thing, believing in human relationships, believing in the power of the kind of informal and the accidental, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Um, and I remember Rob. So on that point, I remember Jane um, coming back from. And sort of reporting back to, to to everyone back at back back up in Liverpool after she'd met met you guys, uh, I didn't realise that was the first time you'd met. But she came back with such boundless enthusiasm about some of those core ideas that you guys kind of uh, you know held so tight to. And um, I, I I was sort of quite young, quite sort of much more junior then, and I remember really being struck by it. And um, in preparation for this, uh, I, I was actually looking back at some of the correspondence around my, my visit and the, those of my colleagues. And uh, I remember we, we, were, we were actually pestering Jane to remember to take us down next time she went because, because we'd been talked about for months about this, this, this wonderful place she'd visited where, you know, they don't lock the doors and there's no signs anywhere and the flowers are beautiful and it just and it feels human. Yeah, it really, really, really struck her. Really struck her. What strikes me... Though when, when I was listening to you speak about that, the importance of that sort of putting people at ease and the power of nature to do that. One of the challenges we, we've had with the mansion house is that the, the, the sort of the, the structure of the building itself is fundamentally not that welcoming to most people. It's, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's a rich person's house originally. Um, and although it's been renovated, that's still what it looks like from the outside. Uh, and so we've had to work really hard to kind of... Uh, change really the people's instinctive reactions to the, the architecture it, do, it doesn't say you know welcome come one come all come in and see what you can find it says i'm rich and, and unless i've invited you you know i don't want you here <laughs> um and, and the, the process of kind of trying to de- almost design that out and and make people feel welcome the Nature has been a huge part of that, actually. The uh, the, the gardens we've, we've we've put around to to soften things, to almost cover some of the mansion house in colour that feels welcoming to people. Because uh, we we get we get feedback about this that people go, oh, I didn't I didn't think I could come in here. Uh, you know, people have got memories of the space for years being a being sort of not not a public space and a, a place where they couldn't go. Um, it, it's been it's been amazing over over the last sort of few years since since we opened in 2019 to see the change in in in, in people in people's relationship to the space and then what that opens up for them. Yeah, I mean it's a challenge we never had in Bromley by Bow because we weren't working with kind of listed buildings and having all those kind of planning constraints that I'm sure Calderstones was working with. So it's a it's an achievement to be able to um, say that to to kind of 
feel that the, some of those barriers are, are being broken down. Um, I had a really interesting conversation a few years back now, probably six or seven years ago, uh, with someone who came to visit the centre and spent actually, a, like you actually, spent a bit of time with us, and in that case, a few months with us. And she was a priest, and she um, spent time with us. And I remember vividly remember one day she came into my office and said, do you realise you've got a monastery here? <laughs> I said, well, that really crossed my mind. And so she then went on to explain that, and I didn't know all of this beforehand, obviously, but there were, what, were seven or eight sacred characteristics of a monastery. And she then kind of reeled them off and, and kind of said, yeah, you've got you've got the seven, I think seven of the eight, I think was what she said, and almost accusingly saying, why have you not got the eight? I'll tell you that some of the other, I can't remember all of them, but one was a refectory, you know, an eating place, which we, you know, we, we have our cafe. There was a chapter house, which is a kind of conference room where we have our, our board meetings, etc. There was a prayer cell, which we literally have, prayer cell, multi-faith uh, prayer cell. Um, there was a bell tower, uh, there was cultivated gardens, there was all sorts of stuff, which if you look at a medieval monastery, you know, usually these characteristics exist the one that was missing and this was a joke at the time when i because i was at that point beginning to engage with the reader was we didn't have a scriptorium and um so we didn't have a library and uh still doesn't have a library although someone did quite cogently argue that the it suite was a modern equivalent of a scriptorium and i mean with some uh, justification but i suppose that i'm reflecting on that in relation to what you were saying about kind of welcome and how you create hospitable uh spaces and in some ways monasteries of course uh, are very uh, forbidding but usually when you go into a monastery you're not necessarily going into a building at all you're going into a courtyard you're going into a cloistered garden and you're going into a space which is both internal and external and this was some of what we've been working on over the years was these ideas of what what is your first encounter and of course we live in britain and weather isn't always good so there's a whole question of you know, if we were in the mediterranean it might be slightly different but Nonetheless, we we try to use the idea of, of gardens and courtyards uh, not as a kind of means to an end. They are in some ways a means to an end, but as an end in themselves, that those spaces are the open spaces, outside spaces, are as much part of the buildings, so to speak, as uh, the bricks and, bricks and mortar, so that the encounter and the therapeutic journey and the kind of healing processes, that are in, when, again, language perhaps not, usually spoken about in terms of the kind of buildings that we see in communities these days. But that that kind of healing journey starts from the, the moment that you arrive. It doesn't take away that moment of forbidding. And I think you, you know, you rightly say that, you know, that that's can be really challenging. We would lots of people who said, Oh, I didn't know I could come in here. You know, it's not a not a problem that doesn't exist even after forty years is that sense. But it's it's that trying to overcome that threshold and then and I suppose this is where there's a bit of a contrast, isn't there? So you could say, well, why is it not all open? Well, partly the reason for it not all to be open is practical things like security and stuff like that. But also the the, the idea that when you do cross the threshold, then you're in a safe space, that you're in a kind of womb-like um, environment. Uh, again, I'm not sure these ideas really surface very much when the NHS is talking to their architects. You know, these sort of ideas about... What kind of spaces helps to make people feel well, helps people to make them feel safe? And I, and I suppose we've tried to, um, you know, we've tried to encompass that in the design. And, and as I said at the beginning um, of, of this kind of section, I mean, we've, we've been lucky because we've not been constrained um, 
by too many planning rules. Um, indeed, we've probably broken lots of rules along the way of ways in which you're supposed to do things. But but we've always tried to behave in a way that is to design spaces in a, a human scale, in a way that kind of makes people people feel kind of welcome. Um, and also for the, the joy in some ways of doing it incrementally. So it's not like we've sat down with planners and with architects 40 years ago and said, let's build the Bromley by Boat Centre. And we've, we've, we've learned as we've gone and indeed along the way we've made mistakes and corrected things, adjusted things accordingly. But, but I suppose those principles are, are really fundamentally important. But how do you create spaces that both feel welcoming, but also feel secure and safe for people? I was interested in what you said about that in, the incrementalism and the advantages of it as well, Rob. Um, we where where our site is much much younger than than Bromley by Bow, but it, we were already definitely feeling like you know what there were things we thought were going to be right when we when we were sort of planning in twenty nineteen right before we opened, and actually they haven't worked out the way we thought thought they would. Let's change it, and uh, it's a real advantage actually, isn't it? Yeah, totally, and and I think it's you know to to kind of uh, kind of extend the analogy. Um, if you'd taken your knowledge in 2019 and uh, your plan for Calderstones and the creation of what you created there, and rather than saying, let's let's kind of progress with this, let's build it, let's uh, learn from the process of building it, um, you know, let's uh, see what happens, if you like. If instead of doing that, you know, the world was your oyster and you had unlimited resources, you said, well, we've worked out now, let's build 100 of them up and down the country. Um, then imagine how many mistakes you're multiplying by 100 as you do that. And um, it's it's an argument in my mind, for which is about how you create things locally, how you, how you use context. It's not to say you don't have an overall plan, but of course the government's way of doing this is to decide this is the model we want to follow in terms of whether it's health centres or, or academy schools or whatever it is. Um, and before they really understand the micro detail of one place, um, they're building hundreds, if not thousands of them, and they're taking a policy nationally without really understanding uh, how this is going to work or indeed how this might be contextualised. And rather than taking principles, um, you literally take the plans. You literally take the plans and say, okay, I'm going to plonk one over there. And yeah, we might have different architects. It might look slightly different. But here's the funding model. This is how it's going to work. Um, and that's why you end up with white elephants. So, you know, someone might walk into Bromley by Bow and say, okay, I can see what this is. This is a one-stop shop. Uh, we can build one-stop shops. We've got them. Every local authority's got a one-stop shop, but not every local authority's got a Bromley Bible Centre or a Calderstones because the culture that sits alongside that, the way in which it operates, um, I can walk into one-stop shops where you take your little um, your little ticket and you sit down, you wait for your number to be called, and yeah, they can deal with 10 different problems that you might be presenting with, but they don't want you to come back tomorrow. In our case, GPs, um, you know, are trusted intermediaries in our community. People trust the doctor, irrespective of whether the doctor deserves trust. And obviously, the vast majority of doctors <laughs> absolutely do deserve your trust. But um, there is an inherent belief that the doctor is the person you go into, and particularly in, in, in poor communities. That's often the case, that that's where people turn to in their moment of need, irrespective of whether fundamentally it's a clinical problem that they've got. Now, the NHS sees that as problematic and their desire is to push away people who want to come and see the doctor too often. Uh, people who want to come and see the doctor every week and sit down and take 12 minutes of their time. 
you know, the Treasury doesn't like that sort of approach. They would rather people didn't come, so we want to discourage people from coming. And of course, the thing about Bromley by Bow and Calderstones and the reader is uh, we want footfall, we want frequent attenders. We've developed this concept of the department store, John Lewis, whatever you want to call it. If you're running a department store and one of the departments is primary care, but there's another department which is called social welfare, there's another department which is called business incubation, there's another department which is called therapeutic horticulture. Actually, coming to the wrong department isn't so much of an issue. And if actually your your doctors are a really good way of connecting with people because people trust them and they're going to come into the department store, they might initially be buying the wrong product, they might be wasting the GP's time in inverted commas, but they're in the right space and they're in the space where they can go and shop in those other departments and begin to understand that actually probably need a cup of tea to sit down with somebody, not a doctor, but just to sit down with somebody a bit like themselves and have a conversation. And of course, inevitably, certainly in the most complex situations and with people with the most uh, long-term and complex sets of issues, the most therapeutic sentence that we ever utter is, hang on a minute, I'll put the kettle on. It's that idea of sitting down and saying, not because in the course of drinking a cup of coffee, you're going to, a cup of tea, you're going to solve everybody's problems. On the contrary, you're not, but you are going to open up a dialogue, which might then last for many years and, and, and a relationship. So this idea that you want to, um, you know, build a one-stop shop in order to kind of solve people's problems is a million miles away from our one-stop shop type of approach, which is much more fundamentally about building the long-term relationships. The department store analogy is brilliant, I think, and uh, it it strikes me that the, the thing about the thing about doctors is very interesting. Is there is there a safety in having doctors on site? Do you think, Rob, in terms of that people feel safe in going to see? It's okay to go to the doctor when actually there's there's other things that that person needs, and they may know that deep down. I, I don't know what what is there anything in that idea? Yeah, I think there is actually. I think there's. And it's interesting because if you were to, you know, look at Bromley by Bow in kind of uh, nuts and bolts terms, there's a there's a primary care team, um, you know, led by the partners. I actually happen to be a partner as well, so I have a leadership role within the primary care team, although I'm not a doctor, which is slightly unusual. Um, and then there's a charity, and 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 the two things kind of sit um, kind of side by side. Now, the purpose has always been to unify those things, so they're not seen as being two separate organisations. But undoubtedly, you know, the relationship that somebody has with a doctor is different from the relationship someone might have with a community worker they've never met before. And and so legitimacy is a really important um, benefit, I think, in that particular model. It's not the only model, but it, in that particular model, I think it's a really important element. So, for example, if you were to take a, a flu clinic, or probably not called flu clinics, <laughs> flu COVID clinics, but if you were to look at that as an exercise, you think, okay, that's a, it's a very clinically derived kind of uh, model and you're, you're basically putting drugs into people's arms. But if you were to look at it and say, as we have done, you know, actually that's a very safe space for people. People are, you know, readily coming in to see the doctor to get the food job. Um, why don't we put a social welfare support worker work to work alongside the GPs? Um, then that gives huge legitimacy to that worker. It's very, very significant. And it's very practical as well, because you've literally got people sitting around for 20 minutes waiting to get their jab. But but the doctor is, is essentially saying, actually, interestingly, both by implication and sometimes in reality, 
why don't you go and talk to Lucy and have a conversation with her? And it, when the doctor says that, it makes such a such a difference uh, for not for everybody, but for many many patients. That, that's a, that's a tick. Um, you know, having been told not to answer the door and not to talk to people on the phone and to be suspicious of people, that level of legitimacy really is a significant tick for people. So, so that is that is de- definitely part of it. I think the other bit of it, and this is you've experienced this having been to Bromley Bible. The other bit of this is, um, how do you take the obstacles away? <laughs> and you know, I'm a white middle class man with a university education, and Sometimes I really struggle to navigate the NHS. Um, sometimes I get confused. You know, sometimes it feels as though the layers of bureaucracy and uh, you know, waiting for the letter to arrive and then wondering what department you go to and turning up at a very busy hospital and trying to find the right place. Uh, it's not impossible, clearly, but, you know, it, 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 it's a challenge. And it's hard for me to imagine, actually, if I were someone else and I had a, a level of vulnerability, um, if I had severe mental health, stress, anxiety, um, if I was a single mom with three kids, if I didn't speak English as a first language, oh, you could layer and layer and layer the kinds of challenges that people are working with, who, of course, are the very people who need to access those services, then um, it's not hard to see that there are many, many obstacles put in the way of people accessing the, the important services they need. So fundamental question in the Bromley Bible model that one asks as you're beginning to think about a new service or a way of working is, does that help or hinder the customer? And if you've got that as a fundamental question, and of course that is the sort of question that a department store would be asking itself, does that help or hinder the customer? Does that encourage people to come in or does it make it more difficult for people to come in? And of course in a department store you want people to loiter. You want to literally people to loiter with intent. You want them to go and see the doctor, but you also want them to hang around and have a coffee in the cafe, perhaps as a result of that, have an encounter with somebody, which then leads to a support session on whatever it is their kind of wider needs are. But in asking that question, does that help or hinder the customer? It's a simple question, but actually, and in many ways, the answers are quite often simple, but they are challenging and certainly challenging for the NHS and for local authorities to answer. So what does it mean in, Br- in Bromley by Bow, in the literal context of Bromley by Bow? Um, simple things. No CCTV cameras. So we're not advocating that some kind of fundament- fundamentalist view that you must have no CCTV cameras. But in our context, we felt it was important not to have CCTV cameras pointing people going about their everyday business in a set of buildings that they effectively own. And we want to, them to have a sense of, of ownership. So let's not do that. Um, Let's not have signing in and signing out. So if you have limited literacy and actually signing your name is a struggle, then you may not stop someone accessing a service by having that, but actually you're going to put them ill at ease. You're going to make it more difficult for them. You're going to make them feel nervous. You're certainly going to exercise a power dynamic with that individual um, as you as you do something which in the voluntary sector is often very much accepted. You, know, you sign in, you sign out. Well, let's not do that. We don't need to do it. Let's not do it. And then the ultimate one is the um, is the push button entry systems. So again, do we want to have a system whereby, in a community setting, community organisation, um, people who don't speak English as a first language, for example, have to press a button. They have to speak in English. They then have to listen to someone in English explaining something that they don't understand in order to access the building for the service that they need for themselves or for their children or, or whatever, and. 
and as I say, it's not to create that as some kind of mantra. Those are every community organization must do those things, not at all. There are circumstances in which it's perfectly appropriate to have CCD like TV cameras or to push button entry systems. What's more important is, is that you're asking the question, does that help or hinder the customer? Yeah, that that just really seems to reflect that understanding of the community there, Rob. It's that, it's that context point again about how in Bromley's setting, there's certain things that are just taken for taken for granted in the sector that actually you need, we need to avoid, and it, it's that it's that kind of thing that just really uh, sort of highlights that localism point for me. I think I think our equivalent of that is we've um, taken that idea of kind of trying to minimise things like signage. Uh, I always remember Jane talking about um, the two most confusing places in the world: are hospitals and airports, and they're also the places with the most signs. Um, and they, they don't actually help on a, on a, on a human level. Um, so, we, you know, we, we've tried to live some of that, but the, the, the one that's really done it for us, I think, is is building, as part of our community, a, a bank of really committed volunteers who just, who basically just spend time on our welcome, in our welcome area and speak to people. Um, and it, it's a wonderful thing to see. Um, when, it's at, when it's at its best, People come through, come through our sort of quite grand front door uh, with, with with all the uh, sort of attending forebodings that that they might feel, um, and our our brilliant volunteers just welcome them in a sort of really really relaxed, unobtrusive, non forced way, put them at ease, and then are, are just are available as a resource for for for, for information, for conversation, for just chit chat, and it. Yeah, it, it, it really makes a huge difference in breaking down some of those barriers. Um, I I personally love how 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 the extent to which Bromley by has managed to design those things in over time. Though every time you've you've, you've changed something, every time you've you've uh, I don't know made add an extension or changed the layout in any way, you've you've held true to those those principles that we know in our community. Push button door locks. CCTV cameras, certain types of signage are, are negative and are actually harmful potentially to our people. So we're not going to do it. You know, I, I think I just think that's a hugely impressive thing. I'm really pleased to hear that because I, over the years you say these things <laughs> and quite often, not least because you're often speaking to local authorities or public bodies, where it's, it's actually very difficult to um, uh, to implement those those principles. Um, and I, I totally get that. It, it's, it's lovely to hear. I guess it's to do with the freedom, isn't it? As an independent charity, that you can you can decide some of the rules that you want to kind of follow, particularly when it's linked to you know the, the kind of principles and the behaviours that you you want to encourage. I suppose the other thing I would say in all of this, and I think this hopefully would um, be encouraging rather than discouraging, is that. You know, we don't always get it right, and actually, some of the the very principles that I've been talking about have been the most difficult to kind of maintain. Um, often, simply because of human behaviour, and also sometimes because we forget and we we kind of, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you at the moment with and reeling off a set of principles that you know I I know because I've been chief executive of the organisation. Um, but you know, we're continuing. You know, we I say, keep saying now. Of course, I no longer the chief executive, but we were a team that was continually changing, a team that is continually changing, new people. And it's always difficult to maintain those principles. And of course, you don't want this thing to be too static either. 
you want to be checking to make sure that those principles are right. But actually, more importantly, what other things might be important? And are we, you know, are we living by a set of rules? Are we like a Benedictine monastery where you know the, you know, the rules were set, you know, in eight hundred AD or whenever it was that Benedictine monasteries were first established, and we're sticking to it the rule you know in a, a very inflexible way and we don't want to be like that either we want to we want to be informed we want to know what principles are but we want to we want to be informed for the future as well and i certainly feel and i, I guess this is generational and i have stepped away at uh, this point in my life um from that kind of day-to-day involvement but i think we also want a younger generation to inform that as well you know when i first went to Bromley by Bow, not in a leadership role but when i first went as a volunteer i was 24 you know, and that, and that um, you know, my worldview back then was very different. And actually, at that point, you know, I was joining a group of people who ranged, I was probably one of the younger ones at that point. But, you know, um, you know, there were people in that small team of Bromley by Boat back then, you know, who were in their late 70s. And and so there is that need always, I think, to be reflective of, of kind of um, not just having our principles too static. Um, I mean, I, I, I always reel off the... Um, the active values that the Roman Bible Centre, which I'm sure we talked to you about those quite a lot when you were around, but you know, be compassionate, be a friend, have fun, and assume it's possible for active values. And it, it's easy to kind of get into a position, of course, those are very good, they have been very good values. They're very practical. We call them active values because they've got doing in them. And any number of times I've presented a PowerPoint presentation and I've, I've reeled off the active values, be compassionate, be a friend, have fun, as soon as possible. People get their mobile phones out and take pictures of them. Um, I suppose in order to think, oh, well, we must apply these principles in our place. And um, I'm not sure that's right, actually. You know, I, th- I think um, if, if if having tested the market and having gone back to base and, you know, those are the values that you want to adopt, then that's fine. But actually, it's much more important for, for, for that sense of ownership to come. And I think that's why people like me also need to come step back uh, after a period of time and allow that, that next generation to kind of pick these things up and iterate things in different different ways, hopefully with the same motivations, but, but perhaps um, presenting and thinking about things differently. It's just another form of context in a way, isn't it? Because it, it, times change, the society around us changes, um, and it strikes me that change and ability to manage change in a positive way is, is one of the real strengths of, 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 the, of the sector, actually, of organisations like ours. Things change constantly around here at the reader, um, and actually it's one of the things that makes us make, makes the place what it is while still holding holding true to some, some, some core values. And I agree, it's not about being sort of fundamentalist about those things. It's about sort of remembering about those things that, that drive us. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's important for there to be for there to be sort of almost generational change within within organisations to make sure it keeps reflecting keeps reflecting the, the the world around us. Yeah, there is a really practical rider to this, which is in theory everything I've said and everything you're saying, you know, I think makes complete sense. But the the extent to which this work that we're engaged in is influenced by funding and is influenced by who, who backs us politically and all of those kind of very practical questions um, shouldn't be underestimated. So I think um, I've always felt in my professional career doing this stuff that by and large, with very, very few exceptions, you're, it's like you're sailing a boat into the wind. 
attacking into the wind. Um, very, very occasionally, you've maybe felt a sails billow and feel that you're kind of being propelled along, but, but that's the exception rather than the rule. And I think one of the impacts that that has, of course, is that you you end up, you know, going in a direction you don't want to go in. And I think that's a re that is a real challenge in, in, in our sector and what we do. And, and, and in some ways, it's a sad truth that Bromley Bible has been around for the best part of 40 years. Um, we've hosted <laughs> hosted royal visits and we've hosted numerous political visits from two prime ministerial visits to, I don't know, 70 odd ministerial visits. In that time, no one ever came and said, I think this is a really bad idea. I, th you know, I really think, um, you know, you're doing this all wrong. Um, but nor did anybody say, actually, you could improve this by doing this. On the contrary, um, I call it the nodding dog syndrome. Um, they all came and they all nodded like these kind of mindless dogs in the backs of a car, um, agreeing with everything you said. And indeed, going further and saying, oh, we should have one of these in every community up and down the country. But it, it didn't make a blind bit of difference. And it wasn't actually reflective of political party or political ethos. Um, I think pretty much everybody who came, and I think we had nine secretaries of state for health over the years, uh, different secretaries of state for health over the years. I think they all came, and actually, if I'm being honest, they connected with us at a human level. Um, so they weren't being ungenuine. They did genuinely think. And I think, as I've always said in my own personal experience and certainly experience of staff, you know, one of the telltale things I project is onto you, but it might even be in your case as well, because it's very, very common. Um, people respond positively to the Bromley Bible model because at some human level, they connect with it. Um, you know, for me, particularly, um, you know, I've lost both my parents, but in their health, both lived into the 90s. You know, I, I, and my mom had dementia for 12 years. You know, I always thought, actually, what would their life experience have been in the final decade of their lives if they'd lived opposite the Bromley Bible Centre? I think they'd been all over it. You know, they would have been in every day. They'd been an absolute nuisance, to be honest. But, you know, they would have been all over it. And they would have been in the cafe and they would have been, you know, my dad would have been running clubs and doing stuff. But that wasn't their circumstances, and I think that you know it was a, in some senses, less good for them because they weren't. And others have said, you know, I wish a place like this existed where my brother is. You know, schizophrenia and severe mental health issues, and where he's living, he's not getting this kind of support that he might otherwise need. And over the years, repeatedly, and it, it is with visitors, but it's also with members of staff that that sort of idea. I remember Planet Asthma, we had a very senior business leader came to visit us. Um, we ran a project called Planet Asthma for kids with asthma. And, yeah, you know where this is going. You know, he he, he more or less broke down when, he, when we started describing Planet Asthma, working with kids around the and taking their old inhalers and spray painting them and turning them into spacecraft and all the rest. I mean, a fun, fun project, but profoundly connect, connected for that guy um, because of his own life experience of living with asthma as a child. And I suspect all of those government ministers and all of those people who come, connect because of some human reason and they get it and they do get it maybe there are some exceptions but by and large that is the case um but it hasn't translated into policy you know it's more difficult now to build the Bromley by both center than it was 25 years ago um and that's that's a that is a reality so i think in all of our kind of aspirations around creating these kind of places and culture it would be wrong certainly be wrong for my generation to make it sound as though it's the easiest thing in the world to do it on the contrary, 
Um, it's the devil's own job to do, and it continues to be so. It's not. It's not. A, it's no kind of magic bullet um, that kind of uh, guarantees success in this business. And in some ways, as I say, it's, it's more difficult. That's that depressing note, but actually, it's true. Um, so all the more respect to those who are doing it and who are, you know, sailing into the wind continually. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your relationship with the reader, Rob, and and with reading. Uh, can we start with that one? Actually, tell us a little bit about your your life as a reader. Yeah, it's a really good question because I, I I said I mean when I can't remember when it was you'd probably be able to tell me but when I first engaged with the reader I did try and persuade Jane that this was a really bad idea because I'm not well, <laughs> certainly in terms of the patrons of the reader but even more widely in terms of the general public I'm not kind of one of these kind of book enthusiasts yeah books books have been important but I'm not. So I'm not one of these people for whom it's kind of the, you know, I don't belong to six book clubs and all of that kind of stuff. Um, the interesting little thing, um, sort of over and above my kind of general um, encounter with, with reading, um, is I now have a grandson, um, which is really exciting. And he's he's two. And um, so he's not reading, but he's into books. And he, he, he lives in Germany. So his first language is actually German. He seems to really devour books, as I suppose many children do. So that's been my recent encounter with books, actually. It's very interesting because, of course, uh, you know, my, my two kids are 27 and 30. And um, they, uh, you know, so it's a long time since I've read to, to children. But that whole thing about the importance of books, and, and he loves books, all sorts of books he's, um, he reads. You know, he reads, Freddie's a very typical boy. He loves things that to do with tractors and diggers and all this sort of stuff. Even at the age of two, he seems to be expert in that. So that's quite fun, actually, just that, that kind of encounter, just thinking about the importance of books for him as he as he grows up. And, uh, and it's, a very, it's a very natural thing, I think, as a grandparent to want to introduce your children to books. And I guess that seems natural to me. You know, we, we do it, but maybe it's not natural in every context. But the, the joy and the power, you just the joy you can... And I suppose that's the other thing. It's, it's unbridled, isn't it? His, his pleasure at books is not constrained in the way that we might, you know, have a quiet chuckle at something that's slightly funny when you read a book. He's all over the place, and he's chucking the books around and throwing them and, you know, really kind of, at a very kind of uh, basic level, literally encountering books for the first time, which I, I just think is it's really interesting. Well, congratulations on becoming a granddad, Rob. <laughs> Thank you. What, uh, what, what's his name? His name's Magnus. Magnus, that is a, that's a cracking name. Um, yeah. It's funny you should say that. I'm around the I'm around the age where a lot of my a lot of my mates are having kids for the first time, and uh, it's brilliant seeing children with books. Yeah, love them. There's a, there's a, there's a real. Yeah, I think you use the words unbridled joy. It's a, it's it's a glorious thing to see and. Um, yeah, just, you know, obviously we as the reader think uh, everyone should have that all throughout the life. Brilliant, brilliant. It's, uh, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I hope you have too. And uh, thanks very much. Not at all. It's been a pleasure. conversation, 
Rob mentioned the opening to connection and conversation that can come from just offering a cup of tea. Both Bromley by Bow and the Reader's Calderstone's headquarters have cafes on site, which, with the help of friendly staff and volunteers, can function as gateways for their customers into a deeper and longer-term involvement with the two sites and with the charities they house. You can hear now how this really works, first-hand, from a Calderstones volunteer, also coincidentally called Robert, who spoke at a recent event for Reader staff. Robert explained how he'd come as a stranger into the Reader Café at a difficult point in his personal life and found there an opportunity to unburden himself that he'd not found elsewhere and then how that led to a new role for him. Joining the Reader was at a very kind of dark point my life. Um, end of 2020, we actually ended up losing my dad. Um, those two years were just horrendous, just kind of lost in all these kind of negative emotions, and not really knowing what to do or where to go, just losing like a big part of like a structure to your life. Um, you know, we'd always kind of look after my dad. Uh, he's always been kind of elder. I think he was in his 60s when I was born. So. Um, there's such a core component of your life just vanishing overnight and just not really knowing what to do or what your purpose is anymore or where to kind of aim your goals and things and just trying to get through every day and trying to manage and cope with all the kind of feelings that you're feeling that you don't really know what to deal with. Um, so it was just such a kind of chaos, like a mess that you kind of meander through all the time. And um, yeah, there was, there was one day that we'd, uh, we'd come down here to Calderstones and um, get the Chatty Cafe on, and uh, Beryl was running it. And we, we just kind of sat down, talked about kind of everything that went up to that point, and um, really kind of vented in a way that I hadn't vented in a while. It's um, curious, you can kind of spill everything to a stranger sometimes, but the people around you just feel like you're burdening them with the kind of feelings that you have. Um, but it was surprisingly easy to do that. You kind of feel this big weight off your shoulders as you do. And um, yeah, from, from there, I um, was kind of pushed into maybe, you know, expanding it <laughs> from there. So you know, it's, it's really something else you can do if you, if you have the energy to do it. So um, I was on the fence, you know, um, we used to be one of these people who thought we'd like get offered something and you just think, oh no, I'm not going to do that, that's going to be too much effort, kind of thing. But I, I thought, you know, just in that moment, just kind of give it a try, kind of just go down, uh, see how it goes. And it was, you know, it was a good decision. I'm still here a year on, so <laughs> it, it did work eventually. But um, yeah, Jules was, was, was lovely, is lovely, still carries on being really supportive and looking after all of us on the volunteer side of things. And, um, just being able to kind of get out of the house, especially kind of working from home, um, not being able to chat to people too much on a day to day, just getting out of the house, talking to members of the public, talking to other staff members. It's just, for, for even for kind of a neutral state of mind, it's just incredible being able to just pass over some knowledge to people and learn something new yourself every single day. Um, it's just kind of such a rewarding 
experience and um, really can pull you out of that really dark place that people can kind of find themselves in all the time. Um, so, yeah, like I say, very, very rewarding, very grateful that I ended up coming down here and um, thank you for kind of showing me a different way to kind of get through everything, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, pretty much all I have. Hello, I'm Maxine Peake, and I'm a patron of The Reader, which is a national charity on a mission to bring about a reading revolution, using the power of literature and reading aloud to transform lives. Our volunteers around the country bring people together in small groups to read great stories and poems and create powerful moments of connection. We call this shared reading. In a world that feels increasingly divided and with increased pressures on our mental health, shared reading offers time and space to share what matters, improving well-being and reducing loneliness. If you want to support the reader's vital work, visit www.thereader.org.uk to donate or get involved. Thank you. Rob's conversation and Robert's words there reminded me strongly of a poem that has been read by staff and volunteers at the Reader for many, many years. I'll read it here now in the knowledge that it will probably be read again in a future podcast episode. It's called Not Love Perhaps by A.J. Tessamond. This is not love, perhaps. Love that lays down its life, that many waters cannot quench, nor the floods drown. But something written in lighter ink, said in a lower tone, something perhaps especially our own. A need at times to be together and talk, and then the finding we can walk more firmly through dark, narrow places and meet more easily nightmare faces. A need to reach out sometimes, hand to hand, and then find earth less like an alien land. A need for alliance to defeat the whisperers at the corner of the street. A need for inns on roads, islands in seas, halts for discoveries to be shared, maps checked, notes compared. A need at times of each for each, direct as the need of throat and tongue for speech. That's it for this episode of the Reader Podcast. Many thanks to Rob Trimble, who we hope will be visiting us at Calderstones very soon. Many thanks to George, and thanks to our heritage volunteer, Robert. 
thanks to Chris Lynn, who provides the music, sound editing and production on our podcast. Lastly, thanks too to our core funders, Arts Council England and the players of the People's Postcode Lottery. I hope you enjoyed listening. If so, please let us know by leaving a review. Till next time, goodbye.